Hi guys, we are now looking at lesson nine. Uh, it's the second of three lessons on that passage that we started last week on Isaiah 53. This week's lesson is, is centered on the terrible physical and emotional suffering that Christ endured. Uh, we're going to focus on the Messiah as our substitute for our sins. So we're, we're going to look at the idea here of uh, a vicarious substitute. Now, I uh, want to ask, what does the word vicarious mean? Um, and I've got a, a dictionary brought up here, and we're going to look at that. This is Merriam-Webster's dictionary. The word vicarious uh, it has four definitions. But what we're going to look at is, is the third definition. Performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another to the benefit or advantage of another, as in the idea of substitutionary. Um, when we also look at the word vicarious, just for some trivia, um, vicarious has very strong Latin roots. Uh, if you acted in place of someone else's stead or took his place or her place at least temporarily, the oldest meaning of vicarious, which was first recorded in 1637 in the English language, means to serve in someone or something's stead. Uh, it derives from the Latin, Latin noun vicis, V-I-C-I-S, which means to change, alternation, or stead. Now that same visis is the source of our English prefix vice, such as in vice president, which means one who takes the place of. So we're looking at Christ as the one who takes the place of us in um, our stead. And we want to go back to uh, looking at our, our passage here. Um, we have to ask the question, then, if Christ suffered and died as our substitute, our vicarious substitute, took our place, the logical question is to look at, why is it necessary? Uh, why did man need a substitute? Well, we've got to establish first the origin of sin, uh, then we're going to look at how sin is transmitted. Um, and then we're going to look at the penalty of sin. Oops. We're going to also sneak in there the practice of sin and then the penalty of sin. Uh, so we've got uh, the origin, we've got the transmission, the practice, and the penalty. Uh, after we do that, we'll look some more at the Messiah. But right now, let's look at the sinful deeds of man. So we look at the origin of sin. I think we need to realize some basics. We can't pay for our own sins uh, because the penalty is too great. 
and God's holiness is going to demand total separation from us, from our sin. And that we realize that each person <clears throat> is a sinner by both nature and deed. So then the question comes up is, how did we become sinners? Where did sin come from? Did God create um, us as sinners? No. Uh, God did not create us as sinners. God's creation, including man, in the Bible is recorded as being very good. Uh, so sin is not in that. Sin, um, we will find, originated in the angelic realm uh, when Lucifer, Satan, the devil, uh, chose to rebel against God and, and refuse to the high but subordinate position God had assigned him. I'm going to read a couple passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel. I'm going to look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and then Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. And as I'm reading these, I want you to start thinking about in your mind the answer to the question, what was Satan's root sin? What was the very first sin that's recorded by Satan in the Bible? Let's go look at that passage in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O sun of dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. Did you catch that? I will make myself like the Most High. Let's go on and look back at the next passage. Okay, here we're looking at the passage in Ezekiel, looking at the latter half of verse 12 of chapter 28 through verse 19. Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and your sockets, was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed cherub who covers, and I place you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked amidst the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your corrupted wisdom by reason of splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. 
Therefore I brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth, in all of the eyes who see you, all who know you among the peoples, are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will, will cease to be forever. I guess to answer the question, what was Satan's root sin? I think his root sin was pride. He was beautiful, and he liked everyone looking at him. And I think it occurred in him early in the process. For John wrote, he was a murderer from the beginning, and when he speaks, he speaks a lie. And he speaks of his own, for he is a liar, and he's the father of it. That's John 8, uh, 44, I think. Um, Genesis 3, verse 4, contains the first recorded lie of Satan. And we're going to look at that. But as you look at it, um, remember the passage. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And uh, uh, God has said, you can eat of any tree, but this tree here in the center of the garden. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. And so let's look at the passage that uh, we see in Genesis 3, 4, the first recorded lie of Satan. So in the passage, it's uh, the Satan is talking in the form of the serpent, and that's a term that's used in Genesis for Satan. Uh, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. So you see his first lie of uh, his first lie to, to Eve um, was to change the word of God. God had said, you will surely die. And Satan said, you're not going to die, you know. And so that's what his first lie was. He, he spoke and his first lie recorded in the Bible is, is the lie that they will not surely die. Eve fell into the snare. This is how we see sin coming into man. And he was deceived. She was deceived and she ate of the fruit. And then she gave it to Adam. And he also ate. And that's in uh, the, the third verse of chapter 3. And thus entered uh, sin into the human race. Now, while Satan used deception to with, the, with Eve... Uh, he's not the reason sin entered into the human race. Adam and Eve became sinners because they chose to disobey God. You don't see in the passage where Satan ties up Eve, ties up Adam, beats them to a pulp, and forces them to eat the apple. He, he, he's not doing that. Adam and Eve both took a bite of the fruit willingly. They they became sinners because they willfully chose to disobey God. So that leads us to the next part, the transmission of sin. So the question we're going to look at is, what does Adam's sin have to do with the rest of us? After all, Adam lived thousands of years ago, and we're going to look at that passage in Romans Chapter 5, verse 12, here in just a second.
So we're looking here at the passage in Romans to ask the answer that all have sinned. Okay, well, where does that come from? Where is that teaching coming out of? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as one man, I'm sorry, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spreads to all men, because all have sinned. So you might ask the question, well, what chance does a person have being born sinless, according to the verse? There's none. It says all, it is spread to all men. The proof that we have all sinned in, in Adam is, is that death, the penalty of sin, has been passed on to all of Adam's descendants. We all face death. They're, you know, have done a lot of studies, and they've actually determined that 100% of all people will die. Um, both physical and spiritual parts of a person are derived from their parents originating in conception. Therefore, a man is born with a sin nature that goes all the way back to Adam. Well, is it fair, we might ask, um, for all humans to suffer from the sin of just one man? Well, the divine justice answer is yes. Because of the suffering of one man, Jesus Christ, all can be saved. That's the point of the teaching that we would continue reading uh, that Paul develops from Romans 5.12 to 5.21. While people are lost because of Adam's sin, then all can be saved because of Christ's obedience. Now those of you who are parents may say, gosh, <clears throat> you know, my kid's perfect. He hasn't sinned. I think if we were really honest, we would look back at our children and answer that question. When do we first see children sinning? Well, I know with my kids, it was early on. They developed a, a, a pretty strong, self-centered, uh, um, it's mine attitude. Uh, they wanted something and they wanted it, whether it was theirs or not, and they took it. Uh, so we see that, that uh, self-centeredness uh, comes out early on. Now, if we see that there is sin in the world, it is transmitted because uh, it, it's added into us during the idea of, of uh, um, creation uh, and, and the fact that uh, conception, uh, the, the creation of the body and conception, uh, so how if we are also a sinner by act how how is that played out in the body so as we start looking at some passages here in isaiah you know i would say how do you define sin what what is sin i mean you could say that sin is just an infraction of any god's of god's command it anything that doesn't conform with the holiness of God. Now, if you open your Bibles, and I'll give you a second to get there, and go to Isaiah 53, we're going to start looking at some of the different words for uh, violating God's um, laws, violating God's commands, uh, things that don't conform to his holiness, and we'll see those passages in different words, and we'll talk about those here in just a second.
Okay, now that you've got your eye on uh, Isaiah 53, um, let's look at a couple things. Um, we're going to look at different words that Isaiah used for sin. In verses 5 and 8, you'll see that these failures a person has, these transgressions, uh, um, we see it in 5. Uh, it says he was pierced for our transgression. In 8, it uh, said at the end of 8, for the transgression of my people. Uh, in um, 12, uh, a different word. Uh, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. It's a different form of the same word. Um, so uh, this word is used about 90 times in the Old Testament, this word for uh, transgression. Uh, and it is synonymous with sin, but it suggests a violation of the law through ignorance. You um, know that... Uh, you know, not knowing the about the law is no exception to the rule. This is still here in God's law. Even if you don't know that you're breaking his law, you can still be found guilty of it. And that's what a transgression is. Now, go back. Um, we see in verses 6 and um, verse 11, you see the word iniquity. Iniquity carries the idea of perversion or perversity or depravity. Uh, the word sin in verse 12, uh, yet he him bore, bore the sin of many. The, that word is the thought of missing the mark. Uh, it's an archery term. It means missing um, the, the mark. You're shooting at a target and you're not even getting close. You're off the mark. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we see this, uh, after quoting a number of passages to point, to prove this point, Paul in, uh, Romans 3.23 talks about that all have sinned. There isn't anybody that can show that they don't miss either God's law, uh, they're not perverted or, or depraved, or depraved, or they are not uh, just uh, totally blowing it. Even though they try, they miss the mark, they don't come close. Um, Isaiah, I think you will see, he believes uh, that all men are sinners, because in verse 6 it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Um, we've gone away. We've we've gone on our own way. And these words are vividly picturing uh, the sinfulness of humanity. We've all missed the mark. We've headed our own direction. Instead of pursuing God's will, we seek our own way. Um, so we we have to ask: Is okay? But is sin really that serious? Uh, how, how serious is sin? And we're going to look at a passage, um, just a couple passages to talk about that here in just a second. So, what about sin? Is sin that important a thing? I mean, if it's serious, since everybody does it, can't we just accept it and live with it? Well, in fact, no, we can't live with it. 
Um, James 1.5 talks about that sin bringeth forth death. Uh, sin violates God's law, and it ha there a punishment has to be paid. Uh, God told Adam in the beginning not to eat the, from the tree, that forbidden tree. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. Uh, Apostle Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death. That's in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. Wages is what we get for what we've done. And, you know, if we sin, then we get the wages of it. And Paul says the wages are death. And this is not just even a, a New Testament concept. This is Old Testament, too. Uh, because we see that in Ezekiel 18.4. And I want to read that here. Where it says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father is the soul of the Son is mine as well. The soul who sins will die. So we're not talking about just physical death, but also spiritual death. Um, and the plain truth is we're going to face death. And since all people are sinners, we've set that up. And then not only from uh, just from the sin that Adam comes in, but we all sin because we, we have the practice of sin. We do sin. Uh, and there is a sentence of sin, and the sentence is death. And uh, it has to be met. Divine justice says there has to be a judgment on sin. We can't ignore sin. We can't even pay for the sin penalty ourselves. And we're going to look at Revelation 20, uh, 10 through 15, to understand why paying for one's sin is impossible. So as I said, we're going to look now at Revelation 20, 10 through uh, 15. So if you want to turn there, go ahead and stop the podcast and find it. But uh, I want, as I read it, I want you to think about this question. Why is paying for one's own sin impossible? Well, here we see in Revelation 20, 10 through 15. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are there also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence was the earth and heaven had fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, everyone has to pay for their own penalty. Um, we need a substitute because the idea is that the full price of penalty of sin has to be paid and God's judgment requires that penalty and there is no end to the lake of fire. You will pay for it from now until the end of eternity if you do not find a substitutionary or a substitute uh, a vicarious substitute that will stand in your place. So, if we stand up and that we need 
um, a substitute we have um, a problem where do we find a substitute um, suitable and in that previous study that we did last week we find that Christ indeed is a suitable substitute um, but the question that still remains is he willing to be our substitute now I want us to go back to Isaiah 53 and one of the things that you see is that Isaiah 53 um, prophesies in a way that uh, shows the proof of my of the Messiah's substituting himself for the suffering uh, to the suffering he endured um, you know I give you a few minutes to look at that but what I want you to look at is uh, the the language of Isaiah 53 uh, everything is in a passive voice uh, Christ did not take the action the action was was placed upon him uh, he was wounded not he wounded himself was oppressed was afflicted was taken was cut off was stricken uh, was numbered Christ allowed um, the suffering to be brought upon himself uh, he did not resist it he did not turn from it uh, even in verse 6 it said and the and the Lord laid the iniquity of us all um, it, and it pleased the Lord to to put him through this uh, both God and man had a part uh, in the Lord's suffering Christ submitted to it um, and we see in verse 12 that he bore the sin of the many uh, verse 7 is is the verse I want us to look at so get your eye on verse 7 as I bring it up here on my my uh, tablet I'll be right back so you got your eye on Isaiah 53 Drop to verse 7, and it said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a sheep that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. I think that's the clearest statement of the voluntary submission. Um, you know, unlike in verse 6, the previous verse, Christ was the quiet, submissive sheep. He wasn't like the the, the uh, wayward sheep that has gone his own way. He became the sacrificial lamb of God, uh, which reminds me that we're going to also go over to John chapter 10 to see another passage about the good shepherd. So let's look there. John chapter 10. So John chapter 10, um, I think, has a picture in the New Testament of the idea that Jesus is teaching here about the Good Shepherd. And in that, we see the idea of his willingness to go and die for us. In 14 and 15, it says, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own knows me. And even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I will lay my life down for the sheep. Um, and then down, drop down a couple verses uh, to um, 
17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, um, pictured here, um, you could almost imagine surrounding him, the sheep, we the sheep. His shepherd's crook leaning up against the cross almost, uh, he willingly goes to the cross. Now you might ask, when do we see Christ showing this willingness in other places in the Bible? Well, early on as a boy, he travels to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover. And while he's in Jerusalem, there's a well-known account uh, with the teachers of the temple occurring. And, and it says, after he went down with them, this is talking about his parents, uh, he came to Nazareth and was under subjection to them. He, he was subjected to them. He, not subjected to them, but that's uh, King James type talk, but uh, you know, it was, he was submissive to them. Even as a boy, we see submission to authority. Um, and then Luke 2.52 says, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and with men. He was never a smart mouth. He was never rebellious. Even before he gained his public ministry, he was submissive to the authority of his earthly parents. We also see uh, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane that he prays to the Father. He, he says, not my will, but thine be done. This is just before the crucifixion. Uh, I think the prayer shows the continuing submission uh, to God the Father. Um, and in John 50, 30 says that I can of my own do nothing. I hear and I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Uh, in First Peter uh, 2.21, Peter is addressing to a slave who has received harsh treatment from their master, and he encouraged the slave to take the treatment patiently. He explained, for even Christ has suffered for us, giving us an example, and we should follow his steps. Christ's suffering provides not only for our salvation, but the proper way to view mistreatment. The last thing I want to look at is that the work of the Messiah. And we'll see that here in just a second. So we're looking here about the, his healing ministry in Matthew 8.17. Um, Matthew is quoting Isaiah, and he says, It might be fulfilled as spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and healed our sicknesses. But that's not exactly Isaiah's passage. And the thing we need to realize is Isaiah wrote in Hebrew, and Matthew writes in Greek, and the text that we're looking at is in English. And so uh, the wording is not identical, but it's clear from Matthew that he's referring to Isaiah's passage, uh, that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Um, I think one of the, the explanations that we look at here is that the, the work of the Christ 
uh, during his earthly ministry, this is what he's applying it to, that uh, this aspect that he healed, that he was involved in a healing ministry. And we, we see the, the passages that from the beginning, uh, when Jesus announced in Matthew four seventeen from the beginning of his ministry, he attracted followers. Uh, he preached about the kingdom. He healed all kinds of sicknesses to demonstrate that he could do what he could do. And he claimed what it would be like in the messianic kingdom. Now there are some that will some faith healers that will claim that Christ's death took care of sin and its effects, and since sin, sickness is one of those effects, we should expect to receive faith, healing by faith if we expect to receive salvation by faith. Maybe there's a degree of truth, but um, I think we have to remember that death is a result of sin, and even faith healers will expect to die someday. But I think there's an answer to this whole issue of faith healing versus, you know, uh, sin is that in Romans 8.23 it says there is going to be a redemption of the body as well. I think it's something that still awaits us as believers. The salvation of the body that comes with its healing is awarded at the resurrection. So as a believer we need to remember that our soul is securely saved, but you may not have realized some of the aspects of our salvation yet. So our salvation will not be complete until you are either resurrected or raptured. So as we close off today, I want to leave you with something to think about. Um, you know, and so this is you know, looking at the substitutionary sacrifice. I want you to be uh, thinking about joy. What, if anything, in life is more thrilling and joy-producing than the fact that Jesus died in your place. And I want you to take a few minutes and really think about and write out a one-sentence praise to God for the substitutionary, vicarious death of Jesus on the cross for you. Do that, and we will see you next week.